Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The final report of the Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes has found an appalling level of infant mortality in those facilities. Housing Minister Dar O'Brien joins us to give his reaction to today's report. And later, historian Catherine Cornus shares her insights. We're also going to hear from journalist Fionn Davenport and people before Prophet TD Richard Boyd Barrett, who were both born in a mother and baby home. And pharmacist Kate O'Connell will be live in the studio for all the very latest on COVID-19. Do get in touch on Twitter or hashtag TonightVMTV. Well, we start tonight with the story that has, I think it's fair to say, horrified the nation. The long-awaited report into mother and baby homes has unveiled a litany of horror and abuse which went on for decades. Page after page reveals disturbing details of young lives failed by the powerful institutions of the church and state. Across the day today, we have heard the voices of survivors of a dark chapter in Ireland's history. Our recap of a harrowing day includes dramatisations of testimonies from some of the women and children who suffered in cold and loveless places. The regime described in the report wasn't imposed on us by any foreign power. We did this to ourselves as a society. I didn't give anyone permission to take my baby away. Society was obsessed with hiding everything. We treated women exceptionally badly. We treated children exceptionally badly. We had a completely warped attitude to sexuality and intimacy. I was born then and she remained here for 12 months and she was discharged after 12 months and uh, I stayed here for, uh, uh, for six and a half years and she got work in the local hospital here and she came up here every week for five and a half years trying to take me out of here and the nuns told her go away, you're not going to help him, he's going to be fostered out. I begged the nun to help with the pain but she just walked away. She said, You've had your fun, now this is your payment. You brought this on yourself. My baby was 10 pounds and I was sent straight back to work on the farm after having him. One day I came back from the farm and my baby had been taken away. So I've never seen my mother, I know nothing about her. I don't know if I have any sisters or brothers, aunts or uncles. I have no idea.
Well, let's go live now to Virgin Media News reporter Paul Quinn, who was at government buildings. They were harrowing details in that report, Paul. Many of us still trying to digest what we've read today. There has been some criticism of the Taoiseach Michael Martin's decision to apologise to Morrow, but he's going to go ahead and do that. Yeah, it appears to be the case, Kira. Look, it is a, a shocking, damning report, devastating findings, and I suppose nothing new for uh, those uh, that were impacted, the survivors and the testimony that they gave. But for many of us today, uh, listening to those accounts and to reading those reports, and uh, the Taoiseach today described this as a dark, uh, shameful chapter in our recent history. But as you say, uh, despite, I suppose, some reservations by many uh, survivors that it was too soon for an apology, this report uh, is almost 3,000 pages long, uh, still a lot of it to digest and to get through and some felt that an apology tomorrow was simply uh, too soon. Now, we understand that the Taoiseach was still uh, holding some meetings with survivors but as things stand uh, that apology is expected uh, to uh, take place tomorrow. One uh, survivor I heard on radio earlier on today saying that she had become immune to, uh, immune to apologies so it's certainly a, a very difficult time for the survivors. Now uh, tonight uh, opposition parties have also been voicing at their concerns. Uh, Sinn Féin's Mary Lou Macdonald saying that any apology tomorrow needs to be met by real action, a proper, a comprehensive redress scheme and that uh, people should be given the right to their own information while People Before Profit says that there should be a criminal investigation following the launch of today's report and we know that that report is expected to be sent to the DPP but as things stand the Taoiseach is due to make that apology in the Dáil tomorrow. And of course, the other uh, big story today is the ongoing COVID crisis. The numbers a little bit lower, but the death rates still very, very high and ongoing intense pressure on our ICUs and our hospitals, Paul. Yeah, Kira. so tonight the National Public Health Emergency Team are reporting 46 deaths, which is the highest single uh, daily death toll since April the 28th last year, and 44 of those deaths uh, taking place in January alone. So I think that the high death rate today catching many of us by surprise. The Chief Medical Officer, Dr Tony Houlihan, saying that uh, he expects that this high death rate will continue uh, for some time. And uh, tonight also uh, the uh, Department of Health confirming 3,086 new cases. Now, while the cases uh, are, have reduced over the last couple of days, of course, it's, it's the lag effect and the knock-on impact that this does have on our hospitals and on ICUs. We know as things stand in hospitals this evening, currently there are 1,692 people with confirmed COVID-19 in hospital. 160 of them are in the ICU and another milestone today, that uh, 160 surpassing the peak of the first wave as well. Now, we know that the situation in hospitals is very serious. Uh, it's expected to peak in the next 10 to 14 days and healthcare workers already exhausted uh, facing a difficult couple of weeks but the Chief Medical Officer Dr Tony Hulan just saying, reminding all of us tonight that if the one thing we can do for those 46 families who've lost their loved ones for the ICU nurses, for the front care workers is to stay home and to stay safe. Thanks, as always, uh, Paul Quinn there at Government Buildings. Now, the Minister for Housing, Local Government and Heritage, Dara O'Brien, joins us here in studio and there's so much to talk about, but we are going to start with that report that was published today, all 3,000 words of it. And we've heard from so many survivors saying, look, they just simply haven't had time sure. to, to read it and to digest that report. And so many of the groups have come forward today, Minister, and said it is too early for the Taoiseach mm -hmm. to make an apology tomorrow. Why was he so determined to go ahead with that apology? Well, I think firstly, all of our thoughts are, and myself as government minister and the government are with the 
the victims, the survivors and their family families, it's it's harrowing. Some of the detail that I've read, it's a 3,000 page report. There's absolutely a lot to go through, but it's an important day that there's an acknowledgement of the truth, the truth that the state, uh, the church uh, and society failed many, all of these girls and these women treated so horrendously and so badly. I do think it's important, though, and I know the Taoiseach has been engaging with Minister Roderick O'Gorman and with survivors groups all the way through today, that the state formally uh, does apologise. That's not the end of it. Mm. I think when that happens tomorrow, it's, it's important from a significant, uh, you know, a uh, symbolic perspective. And, and I, I know think many they want an apology, and I think uh, many yes, survivors deserve, are welcoming uh, an apology, they but they just want to delayed. Well, I'm going to let those discussions happen. I think and the Taoiseach has been engaging with them. If the apology happens tomorrow, which is planned that it should, that in itself is very significant. Of course, the first and foremost are the survivors, the victims and their families. And what's really important is the recommendations that come from the report, that they're implemented and that we make sure that truth is put first, that redress is in place for these families, the survivors, for the victims. It's absolutely harrowing what they've gone through, but it is really important that the state acknowledges that formally. And that's a formal part of the process. This is just the beginning of it. For many of these women, they've had decades of this, of, of being shunned and shamed. Those days end now. They're over now uh, in the sense that the state now has to respond and respond positively, work with the victims and their families and the survivors uh, indeed. And that's what we will do. And we, we will work every hour that is sent to make sure that that happens. And yet so many of those survivors today uh, took issue with a number of things, including mm -hmm. the fact that Michael Martin seemed intent on talking about societal responsibility. Well, I think Society yeah, sure, was sure. to blame, not necessarily the, st the state and the church institutions, well, the religious there's, there's institutions. There's no question. I think that it, was, it was quite uh, a, a lengthy press conference as well. It's a lengthy report. There's no doubt in my mind, or indeed the Taoiseach or government's mind, that the state failed these women. Uh, society did also fail these women. The church failed these women. Not just failed them, but actually uh, ignored them, treated them so horrendously and so badly. Uh, and I think it is, today is a harrowing day for people. There's a lot to go through. I know many survivors and listening to, to some of the groups there today haven't even been able to open a page in it because it just, for them, it is, it is looking back into a real dark past that is in the past, but they've lived with for, for all of these years. Now what we need to do is to, is to move toward together, uh, for, you know, towards reconciliation, towards redress, which is really important, making sure that, that you know, things like counselling, like medical cards are in place, like a proper redress is put in place, like, like the information uh, uh, and tracing legislation is put in okay. place. And I want to uh, come is, to, one of, to, yeah, to sure. a lot of that. But, but I, think that's I, very I, I respect fully what, what many of these uh, victims and survivors have said today. That, of course, is taken on, uh, taken on board by government. What I would say is that the Taoiseach making apology tomorrow is not in, in any way, shape or form the end of it. It's the beginning of it. And I think it's important that the state acknowledges that the state is culpable and has been responsible uh, and, and not just, you know, along with society, yes, but with the church and other state institutions for the terrible things that happened, uh, the, these young women, uh, girls and the 9,000 babies who died in these institutions. It's absolutely horrific. Oh, absolutely. It, it beggars belief, I have to say. Uh, Catherine Corliss, uh, mm -hmm. who we all are familiar with, the I heard historian. Catherine earlier today. Um, yeah. Yes, who's speaking on the radio earlier mm -hmm. today and uh, speaking to us tonight here on the sure. uh, Tonight Show. She said a lot of women left 
that webinar today with the Taoiseach and other ministers, the words she used to me this evening were disappointed, mm. disillusioned. And I heard her on radio early today and she said it was a whitewash is how she described it. She said it was full of political jargon mm. and that many of the survivors left that webinar today hurt and confused as to what redress well, is going to be there. Well, what I would say is that we're going to work with survivors to make sure that the redress and the supports that are in place are absolutely appropriate for them. I saw Catherine and heard her on TV this evening as well. She also acknowledged that the whole report has to be gone through in detail, that the recommendations have to be looked at as well. We must acknowledge this is a really tough day for everyone involved, particularly those victims and survivors. And I, and I absolutely acknowledge that. As a government, we will not be found wanting. I was at Cabinet today. Uh, the Minister, I think, has done, Minister O'Gorman has done a really exceptional job on this. But now what we, it's not just the report, or the recommendations, it's how we implement that, how we look after our survivors, the victims and the families. And we're absolutely committed to doing that. And the Taoiseach is as well, I can assure you of that. And, and I accept that, but you can understand the concerns because we've had I a do, pretty poor history about uh, administering 100%. these redress schemes. We see it with the Louise O'Keefe case, mm. we see it with the I understand that Laundry yeah. case. It took nearly five years for those Far too long. survivors. I, I fully understand. What commitment are you making to them tonight about the redress scheme? I fully understand that. This is a, this is a priority for this government. Today is really important that the Commission report is published, that the state as formally acknowledges the truth first and foremost. Now we've got to make sure that redress is in place, uh, that that is in place and all other supports, medical and otherwise. Who is going to be entitled otherwise. to that redress? Well, what we're looking Minister, at, who's we've, going to pay we've, for it? we have, well, I think the state should. I think those institutions like the churches and, and the religious orders that, that were involved should as well. Absolutely. And Should, I think, but the government has no ability, do you, to... Well, not at this stage, but I, I, would, I would think there's a, moral, there, there's a moral obligation on them, and I'm saying that as a government minister, that they absolutely contribute. Uh, the state, there is an obligation on the state too. We want to make sure that this is done right. Uh, I understand that people have been waiting decades for this. And I understand as well as that people have been maybe disappointed in the past with, with certain apologies and redress that has happened. We will get this right and we'll get this right working with the survivors and the victims. I understand today was a really, really tough day for them. A tough day for our country too, but most importantly for them. So we will do everything that, it, that needs to be done to work with them to make sure that we can bring about some healing for them, both in, in, in real terms as well. And uh, I'm committed, and the teacher committed to doing Part that. of that healing sure. is getting unconditional access, mm -hmm. unconditional access to their birth records, their yes, adoption so. files. Can this government guarantee that? Not the right to apply yeah, to the your file, unconditional access, this it's was, very different. I know that, and it was, it was discussed at length at Cabinet today. Uh, with the Attorney General and with the Minister as well, and indeed in government. And what we've said today as well is the information and tracing legislation will be brought forward as priority. I haven't seen that, Kira, so I don't want to, you know, I have not so seen that. So it'll be a legislation, leg not a referendum, which well, I think, I actually, I think some have suggested today. a referendum. I'm not ruling anything out, but I think early access for people to, to their information is, and what lots of people want is that. Uh, I think a lot of that can be done via legislation. Uh, that's, uh, that's, that's our understanding as well. And do you feel, Minister, having been a captain today, that that can be that unconditional access yeah, that I, those favourite groups I, I, I think I, 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 I genuinely don't want, I, I don't want to prejudge anything. It, you know, everyone around Cabinet is involved in this because this is a priority for our state. Okay. This is a, a day where the, the truth rightfully is being acknowledged tomorrow, where rightfully an apology will be made. And now it's the actions from that. And I understand, you know, I understand that a lot, that a lot of people are, are really hurt today as well. What I would ask is that we will be working with them to make sure that the process is put in place, like redress and in relation to 
accessing information that they will be involved in this. Uh, the state can, can no longer yeah. fail these people and I don't want that to happen, nor does the Taoiseach or the government, I can assure people of that who are watching this evening. Okay, let's move on to the other uh, big story today and indeed for the last nine, ten months, which mm -hmm. is, you know, the third lockdown that we find mm -hmm. ourselves in and this third wave of COVID more serious than uh, any others. It was interesting to hear Mike Ryan from the WHO say yesterday, uh, as an Irish man yeah, on yeah. the World Health Organization, the new variants of COVID-19 are not to blame for the soaring case numbers in Ireland. Mm -hmm. He specifically referred to um, socialising that happened at Christmas. And it's really occurred to me, I think, Minister, over the last couple of days, listening to various ministers and members of your government speaking on radio and TV, that there is a lack of acceptance and responsibility being taken by this government for the decisions that were made at Christmas that allowed and facilitated people to socialise again? No, I think I, I, I genuinely, I respectfully don't accept that. I think government do accept, we accept responsibility for all the decisions that we take. It hasn't been easy for government or society dealing with this pandemic. Every country in Europe has seen peaks and troughs and a first, second and a third wave. And if we look back at what the advice that was given as well, and like we've lived with restrictions for, you know, for coming up to a year now and quite severe restrictions since December, the UK variant has had an impact and we know that. And I think Mike Ryan as well acknowledges that socialisation also has had an impact in the rising cases. But we look at even the correspondence from, from the CMO states that up to 50% of, of, of the cases could be in relation to the variant. I don't think that's the issue, though. Okay. What I don't done... think that variant that was responsible no, for the high I'm numbers not, on the I'm first not, second look, and third I, of January I think, I think, No, I, I'm, I'm not disputing that. And what I'm saying to you, of course, we take responsibility for all, for all of the actions. perhaps that mistakes were made. Look, has any government and has this government got everything right through the pandemic? No, absolutely not. But what we're asking people to do now and what we are doing now is making sure that further restrictions are in place. People are, are, are reducing very substantially the context they have, following the public health advice and focusing on the vaccine rollout as well because there is light at the end of the tunnel. Of yeah. course, I acknowledge. But what no, are the learnings, I don't think, I, I, don't think, think I, really if I If I could say just really quickly, no government in Europe has got everything right, including the Irish government. We are doing our level best to balance the rights of society, mental health, physical health for people, people's jobs, the investment and the support. And I do accept all that, so Minister, isn't but I suppose... Easy, I, what I'm saying is it's not easy. And no, I think, and I think, I think, think most, pe most, people, would, would, most people would acknowledge Others were calling, If I don't want to be political mm. with the pandemic, but many others have been. Others were calling for, for pubs to be opened up in the, in the summer, for, for further opening up in, in December. And that was resisted, OK? Now, what we've got to do now, though, is, is make sure just, that we drive really those numbers down. Sure, sorry. I suppose I'm really conscious that there have to be learnings. Of course, there's from learnings. What happened yes, absolutely. There has to be learnings because for everybody, for everybody, yes. absolutely. Because we will find ourselves in the position, fingers crossed, sooner rather than later, that there will be calls again for restrictions to be lifted. Mm -hmm. And I want to know, in terms of the restrictions that were lifted in December, what has the government learnt about socialisation within houses and the reopening yeah, well, I think, of gastro pubs and restaurants? I think what we see from the data is most of the the outbreaks have been from socialisation within houses. And actually, government were given a choice by an effort. And this is historic now. It's early December. So we're talking about what happened between, you know, opening up hospitality, 
or indeed, and the other option was was uh, was was reducing house visits or not allowing, and we didn't allow house visits up to the 18th of December. So I, I can't really say which which one would have had a greater impact. I suppose there was a perfect storm in the sense of we we the new variant in place. Yes, people were more were socialising more, but I think what we need to do now, and what we have been doing for a number of weeks now, and don't forget, we brought in the new changes again uh, in on Christmas Eve, the further restrictions, and our people have been living with very severe restrictions. Now, thankfully. We're seeing like an awful debt toll today, uh, like an awful debt toll. Yeah, and we're paying gonna... the price well, for I, what happened in December, well, aren't we? we I, really I think, are. I think, I think. Look at every European country, Kira. Every European country has actually, and our nearest neighbour in Britain, uh, in the north as well, where we have seen peaks and troughs with this virus. It, it, it doesn't respect any plan. What we need to do now is to protect our health service and our HSE, protect ourselves. We're focused on the vaccine rollout. We're looking at now by, you know, by the end of, of next week, we'll have 140,000 vaccinations uh, rolled out and actually, actually people vaccinated. And we're looking at by the end of March, which is really important, 700,000 people vaccinated, all of those in long-term care, frontline health health staff, those, you know, all of all of those. And yesterday, uh, Minister, and, and I appreciate that, 700,000 by the end of March, I think will be yeah. welcomed. But we heard GPs on the radio all day today saying they were promised a portal yesterday morning. That I was talking to GPs. To I was talking to GPs myself myself this morning. The vaccination on that. plan. A number of and that hasn't arrived yet. A, a number a number of GPs have already been vaccinated in GP practice. You are correct in saying in relation to access to the portal. That was discussed this morning. My understanding from the Department of Health and the HSE and the Minister is that will be rectified by the end of this week, okay, that the portal will be open. Our, our vaccination programmes are ramping up. If you compare that, when we compare with the rest of Europe, uh, in relate, we're, we're the third highest per capita in relation to the vaccination programme in the European Union. So we're getting there and we're going to ramp it up further. We've had Moderna now arriving today. We have AstraZeneca, which is the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, which, which can be administered by GPs and by, and by pharmacists, gone to the EMA as well. So we hope for a swift response on it. And, and this is a seven-day-a-week uh, program of vaccination that is very efficient, that's looking after and is, and is going to target those who are absolutely priority, our elderly, our sick and our frontline healthcare services. Okay. And that's an absolute priority for us and we're going to get it right and All we right. are getting it right. Um, Minister, I appreciate you coming into this evening. I know uh, we'd originally agreed that you were going to come in and talk about and housing, housing and there was so much to talk about. There's a lot to talk about on housing. Um, so perhaps you will come into us again and I'd we will address that issue. I'd be delighted to there's a lot to talk about on housing. The news agenda just dictated I, I otherwise today. I understand. So thank you, no Minister. Problem. If you've been affected by the issues raised in our discussion tonight on mother and baby homes, you can contact the HSE's National Counselling Service. The helpline number 1800 817517 is on your screen there. It's available Monday to Friday from 8 to 8 and Saturday and Sunday from 9 to 5pm. Coming up after the break, historian Catherine Corliss joins us, as well as journalist Fionn Davenport and TD Richard Boyd Barrett, who were both born in a mother and baby home. They'll be discussing their experiences and their reaction to today's report. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're very welcome back. Well, historian Catherine Corliss worked tirelessly to give the women and children who were forgotten about in those mother and baby homes a voice. She spoke to me a short time ago and I asked her, had those survivors been listened to and been given a voice today? Well, at the moment, not entirely. Uh, the, uh, the short webinar today that uh, uh, survivors were invited to listen into, it was, um, I was a bit taken aback by it. I was expecting a lot more. But um, I presume once I read the full report, uh, perhaps there will be a little bit more in it for survivors. From the outset, I just found that it was, um, what I didn't like was that our Taoiseach, uh, Michal Merton, uh, he, he was inclined to uh, put the blame out on uh, society. And uh, there was no mention of what exactly went on in the homes as regards that were run by the religious and backed by the church. So I would have preferred if it was an all around sharing, taking taking on board the blame uh, between all, all authorities. But uh, Michal Martin uh, fairly emphasised that it was society, that it was the grandparents who put their daughters in the home. But we must remember the culture that was created by the church at the time, that they instigated this. They, they, they decided that the culture was that you don't get uh, pregnant before marriage, and if you do, uh, it's, it's, uh, you will be frowned on and you will be punished. That was the culture at the time. And it wasn't emphasised, and there was no onus put on the people who rent those homes and the, the suffering that was inflicted on mothers and children throughout those years. I would have preferred an all-around apology from each and every section of society and the church and religious that caused this in the first place. And speaking of that webinar today, I understand there was up to 500 survivors on that webinar. It wasn't interactive, but what was their impression upon leaving that webinar? Well, the impression they had is, the, is, is what I'm telling you now, because uh, um, I'm speaking on behalf of all those people, and they really were uh, disappointed. Uh, what, what they need, first of all, is uh, an acknowledgement and an apology from all, from all sides. And also, and, uh, to, for the, to, to take an onus on what has happened. I mean, uh, as regards burials and as regards the, all the many children who died, uh, the um, the webinar today didn't really go into that, into the fact that so that they mentioned nine thousand deaths, but they didn't go into the the reasons why we, did, um, we weren't really told about what exactly went on in the homes itself, how many how so many children were allowed to die. Uh, it was very a bit vague as regards uh, as regards that, and uh, we 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 were disappointed at that end of it. And I'm speaking on behalf of survivors. So do you feel, Catherine, then, that there are still many questions about what happened within those homes and, and who allowed it to happen that haven't been addressed by this report? 
Well, absolutely. Um, Micheál Merton seems to be blaming, taking on the onus himself, that it was the state that organised all this, and it was society in general. And again, uh, that's what really hurt people today. They were waiting, absolutely, for uh, just um, people to own up, just to say, we treated you wrong in the homes, for the religious even to make a statement. We don't even know if there's a statement coming from them. And uh, I just uh, heard this evening on this evening's news that the Archbishop Armaya has asked the bishops in Ireland to, to read the report in full. And perhaps maybe a, an apology from them, from them will come yet. And uh, also, they need to make some reparation. They need to contribute to the, to, to the cost of uh, if there is going to be a bit of redress for the survivors. Uh, I know they have asked the religious um, we heard that this evening, to, to contribute, and I think they should. And it would mean a lot to survivors if they just come out and say, uh, we are sorry, we, 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 we take ownership of, of what happened, and we would like to make up to you. Um, that would be a healing for many, many survivors who suffered at their hands. And that's all, the, that's all they're really looking for. It's just um, an apology all around and uh, some sort of atonement for what went on and an acknowledgement. And, and that's the message I'm getting uh, uh, ever, since in the last few years. That's the one message that has been coming across to me. That's, all, that's particularly what they're asking for. And, and it's I that acknowledgement, Catherine, as you say, from religious institutions. But are survivors looking for an acknowledgement about the state's role as well in all of this? Well, that has come already. They were looking for that because uh, that's the one thing they needed. But that, but that alone, that's all that, that we heard today. And uh, I mean, uh, I don't know what's in the full report, but uh, we need to know uh, about the burial practices in particular. And we need to know why, why children were discarded in such a way and why they were uh, sort of just forgotten about. And uh, people who have family uh, missing like that, that, are, that, that died as babies, and uh, the families don't know where they are. And I think that has to be addressed more fully. Well, journalist Fionn Davenport joins us from the UK via Skype and here in studio. People before Prophet TD Richard Boyd Barrett. I'll start with you, Richard. What was your reaction today to uh, this report? I, I have to say that... I, I was very disappointed when I read the first page and then some of the, the early pages, even of the executive summary, where there seemed to be a very deliberate attempt to downplay the culpability of both the church and the state for responsibility for, you know, the horrors, the abuses, uh, the crimes, frankly, that went on in uh, mother and baby homes. Uh, there was a sort of needless thing on, the, I think it was at the fourth page, of sort of saying, well, it wasn't really as bad as what happened in the industrial schools, as if somehow that made it okay. When you had a shocking, you know, 15% of all of the babies that were born in these institutions dying. I mean, that is shocking beyond belief. And as Catherine Corliss said, you know, there's no real explanation for that. Uh, and there's some details, and now obviously I haven't read all 3,000 pages, but, you know, there's some details, and this is where, if you like, church culpability as well as the state, and it really was an unholy alliance. I mean, you had nuns in some cases who were 
paid by the local authorities. The local authorities were overseeing these things, but the day-to-day -day management uh, were the religious orders. And then you had bishops and so on also, uh, if you like, making decisions. So, you know, in one, in, you know, one instance I was reading where they, they were saying some of the staff who were dealing with women and childbirth were not qualified to be doing it. Some government officials uh, wanted something and inspectors wanted something done about that, but a bishop would just come in and say, no, mm. we're not getting qualified people because we want our people in there. And so, you know, th th these are horrendous crimes that were committed. And there seems to be, and again, Micheál Martin's statement echoed this today, a kind of an attempt to, you know, diffuse responsibility onto this wider thing called society. Instead yeah. Now, he did say at one stage the state had direct responsibility. Uh, that is what Micheál Martin did say at one stage today. And, you know, Minister Dara Bryan did say the state accepts it was culpable too. Yeah, well, you know, I think already they've come under pressure because of some of the commentary that was made, some of the statements that were made that seemed to, and Catherine Corliss bears this out, to kind of shift, blame shift away from church and state. And there is, there's a real fear and anxiety among uh, survivors uh, that, you know, when you look at the mismanagement of the situation around access to records, uh, histories and identities, uh, the so-called seal, and we're still not sure how much of that information will actually be available to people, you know, the fear and suspicion that there's an unwillingness to really look into the detail and have real accountability as to what actually happened that could lead to so many infant deaths, so many mothers having their, their babies torn away from them uh, when they didn't really want to, and, of course, the more general institutional stigmatization of women uh, uh, who had children outside childbirth. I mean, the, the notion of illegitimacy was only taken, was only removed in 1987. So the, up until then, you had the state and church saying that thousands and thousands of children were, quote, illegitimate. I mean, it's just shocking. Incredibly hurtful too. Uh, there's just one line in the report. The major identifiable causes of death of all of those children, 9,000 children, were respiratory infections and gastroenteritis, but there is no single explanation for the appalling level of infant mortality. That's come from that report. Is that disappointing? We don't have a real explanation as to what happened that so many children died. It's incredibly disappointing, and frankly, it's not really acceptable. And but, but when you look at the infant mortality rate being so much higher than was the case in the rest of society, you know, it seems to me fairly obvious uh, that there was just a sort of a, a, a treating of these so-called illegitimate children with contempt, uh, appalling conditions in many cases, um, and uh, no interest. I mean, you know, the councils and the politicians who were in charge of this seemed to show no interest at all that there was this shockingly high mortality rate, even though they knew it was happening. So it was almost, you know, the state was sort of saying, well, they're not... Somehow their deaths don't matter as much. Uh, the, the things they're suffering don't matter as much. And that was officially sanctioned by church and state. I just want to go to uh, Fionn Davenport. You're in the UK. Uh, Fionn, I know from hearing and listening to survivors today, there was mothers, that one of the things they had real difficulty with was sort of the lack of acknowledgement that they were forced or coerced to give up their babies, that they might have handed their children over, but they didn't want to. They felt they had no option and therefore, that's not really given consent. I think that was ultimately your own birth mother's experience, wasn't it, Fionn? Yeah, it was indeed, Kira. Um, so my, my birth mother was 19 years old when she went into St. Patrick's home on the Navan Road in January of 1968. I was born in April of that year. 
and was adopted three or four months shortly there after that. She, I've spoken to her since, and she felt she had no choice. There was nowhere else for her to go. Um, her family felt that it was going to be impossible for her to have this baby out of wedlock. All of society that she grew up in deemed her unfit by virtue of the fact that she had gotten pregnant outside of marriage. And so somewhere like St. Patrick's, so for many young women around that time disappear off to England, they were really the only two options. And for my birth mother, uh, as I said, it was St. Patrick's. And, uh, and then once I was born, she gave me up for adoption and uh, I didn't see her again. I met her for the first time since I was born when I was 35 years old. And she, am I right in saying, Fionn, that she did go back to the nuns and say, you know, I've changed my mind. I feel I can mm. so, raise this child. Give me my child back. And they, they refused. Okay. Am I right? It's important to imagine what a young woman in the condition like this would have been thinking, lost, afraid, felt that she had no natural allies whatsoever. So upon entering St. Patrick's, she signed a form that gave consent for, to give me up for adoption. Two days after I was born, she changed her mind. And the nuns told her that she wasn't allowed to change her mind, that she had already signed this paper and therefore it was too late. And she didn't discover until 30 years later that this was a terrible, terrible lie, that according to the Adoption Act of 1952, uh, women who give birth have six months to determine whether they agree to an adoption or not. And this was never explained to her. This was never said to her. In fact, on the contrary, they bullied her into giving me up for adoption. And I have this terrible ambivalence about this because on the one hand, I grew up, I had a good life. I had two loving adopted parents, two siblings. Um, but on the other hand, I cannot reconcile the fact that this woman was cheated of the life that she was entitled to by persons unknown in who worked in St. Patrick's on the Naman Road. And that is a crime for which there is no reparation, really. And now, 50 odd years later, I cannot wrap my head around this. That's the part that must hurt. Uh, and she wasn't alone. We see there's a pretty powerful front page uh, of the Irish Examiner tomorrow and it features just some of the names of um, the victims of the mother and baby home scandals. You can just uh, see it there. There are so many names. Uh, it is shocking. And I know you've said before that at the root of, of your adoption and many others through these homes, uh, Fionn, there's an irreparable sense of loss, a primal wound. Does this report it is a then primal wound. sort of does it go any way? Do you feel to heal that wound in any way? Uh, I mean, uh, like Richard, like everybody, I haven't had occasion to read the report. I'll take my time reading it over the next while. It'll probably be weeks, maybe months. But I'm not surprised by it. I think I think the part that I have the biggest dismay about is the foot dragging over data protection rights and how people like myself, but not just me, many, many thousands of others who want access, who want to know 
the story of their births will have um, roadblocks put in their way. Um, that's number one. Number two is, and, and it's to echo something that Richard was saying, is about this idea of culpability. The problem with saying that, well, you know, society was to blame and the state generally was to blame is that when everybody is to blame, nobody is to blame. Who is ultimately and responsible? as much as, well, ultimately, I mean, I hold the state as accountable as the religious orders, but I hold the religious orders accountable. I hold the nun or the staff worker or whoever it was in St. Patrick's who lied to my birth mother. I hold that person accountable. I hold... I hold the state that knew of the existence of these places for a century and let them operate hiding in plain sight and never questioned what went on. And Fionn, can or if I ask they did, you, they chose to ignore. did get the opportunity to meet your birth mother. You say I it did. left a wound on you. What did it do to her, that experience? I mean, it's, I can only speak from my own experience mm. of meeting my birth mother. It, you know, all reunions are difficult, even the easy ones. And I can say mine was relatively easy in that we have a tentative relationship these last, not quite 20 years, but nearly 20 years. We, we have spoken at length about our respective experiences, me as the adopted child growing up without knowing my, the history of my birth parents and her growing up without the only son she ever bore. And in a sense, there is a bond between us, but it's not really a, a bond in the way that I would have with my parents, for instance, because I didn't grow up with her. She didn't raise me. Um, it's a difficult thing. It's a very, very complicated, tenuous thing. All right. Um, just to go back to you in studio, uh, Richard Boy Barrett, before we have to take a break. Um, the minister who was on just before uh, you both joined us said, the church institutions, they can't be compelled, it appears, to apologise or to in some way contribute financially to the redress scheme, but they are morally obligated to do so. What is your message this evening to those state and to those church institutions, rather? Well, first of all, I don't accept that the state doesn't have the power and the right uh, and indeed the obligation uh, to make the religious uh, orders that presided over some of these terrible practices, terrible abuses, uh, that, that to make them financially uh, responsible, if you like, uh, for providing the services. And this is a key point, the services and the supports uh, and the redress and the restitution uh, that uh, the survivors, uh, many of them need. Uh, and it's worth saying many of them uh, had similar promises after apologies around industrial schools and Magdalene laundries that have not been actually delivered upon. And with some of those religious orders now, like the Bon Secours, are highly profitable, uh, you know, private hospital entities with lots of resources, lots of assets. Uh, the idea that the state can't take some of those assets and use them to actually uh, make redress to the victims of, of these abuses, I, I don't accept uh, I don't accept for, for one uh, single second. And, uh, you know, I mean, the... Uh, OK, we're, uh, we're going to have to take a break, unfortunately, sorry, sorry. Uh, Richard Boyd Barrett. Uh, thank you for your contribution there. You're staying with us. And Fionn Davenport, uh, thank you for speaking to us this evening. If you've been affected by the issues raised in our discussion this evening on that Mother and Baby Homes report, you can contact the HSE's National Counselling Service. Uh, the number is on the screen. We're going to take a quick break, but lots more to come very shortly.
welcome back. Well, joining me now is pharmacist Kate O'Connell and Richard uh, Boyd Barrett, People Before Profit TD, has stayed with us. Um, Kate, we were here to talk about COVID this evening, but I suppose I just wanted to talk about the Mother and Babies Homes report for a little longer because there is so much contained within it. Um, one of the difficulties, I suppose, for so many um, survivors this evening will be a line in the report that despite extensive work, the Commission hasn't been able to establish where those babies, those young innocent children who died at Bessborough, have been buried. How difficult must that be for survivors? It must be heartbreaking and heartbreaking that perhaps, you know, the, the weight of importance wasn't put upon it to, to try and find these babies for people because people are looking for closure. I think today has been a very, very difficult day um, for people like Richard, obviously, but for Irish society, um, for all of us that know the history of our country and what happened. And I don't think it's deniable that there was state and church collusion here. And I think anything that suggests that that wasn't the case um, is, is is treating people like fools. I think we all know what went on here and we all know, um, I suppose, the pathway that was laid out for women that ended up in these um, situations. And in order to was repair the heart we have to nationally atone for what happened and hold our hands up and say this is what happened and it cannot happen again and it is very recent history it's very difficult um, to listen to Catherine Corliss uh, this evening saying one of her priorities, of course, has been to exhume those babies that we know are buried um, in sewage pits in, in Tume. And she's been told today by uh, Roderick O'Gorman, the Minister for Children, that it may be the end of the year uh, before that can happen. Now, given the fact that she raised this back in 2017, that's four years. Is that good enough? I don't think it's good enough. It's a huge portion out of people's lives. And I imagine, I, ca I can't imagine, but I can only imagine if you were in this circumstance that it takes up all your time and there has to be an end point for people. Um, she must be commended for her work and for her patience. And I think for everybody um, this evening, all of our thoughts are with the women that suffered alone, some as young as 12, um, and that no one stood up for them. And this was what was laid out for them and people turned a blind eye. But it was led from the top. And I don't think anyone can deny that there was church and state collusion here. One of the redresses that people are looking for, that survivors are looking for, Richard, is full access to their birth records, to their adoption files. Um, this has been going on for years and years. I think Ireland is one of the few countries in Europe where those who are adopted cannot just automatically access their files. Do you think unconditional access is going to be legislated for by this government? I really don't know, but it doesn't bode well what happened with the legislation uh, before Christmas. Uh, because that smacked of and has made people fear and suspect uh, that there's some sort of uh, policing of some records uh, to keep you know to 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 keep them out of the hands uh, of survivors or people might be looking to access their histories and identities that there's some other interests at work that don't want certain information disclosed. Um, and I think that that's the fear and suspicion people have. And just to return to the to the issue, because, you know, I mean, it's one thing, you know, my story is a mild story compared to some of the uh, some of the suffering and trauma and abuse that people had to put up with. 
But when you're talking about mothers who lost babies and those babies being in unmarked graves uh, where they can't find the location of them. And then in the case of Bespera, uh, the order that owns that site is, is selling off part of that site that may contain some of those remains for private development where people are going to make money. Uh, and the, uh, the victims of that who still do not know where their babies are buried uh, and can't be told, and this report hasn't got to the bottom of it, I mean, that's just not good enough. Uh, and, uh, you know, real restitution means, as many of the survivors have, have really emphasized to me, right. is that the survivors, their needs, their wishes, their aspirations, their sensitivities have to be at the centre of driving this process right. if we're going to get real truth and just uh, reconciliation. To leave it there, my thanks to all <coughs> of my guests this evening. Matt Cooper will be back tomorrow at 10pm. Until then, stay safe. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.